I want to welcome everyone. Tonight's class is going to be the end of the history that we were discussing for the last few classes of the communist movement in the United States and in the world from 1917 to the present. We're up to the period of the 60s. We went through the McCarthy period. We went through the founding of the communist movement in the United States in 1919. We went through the period of Trotskyism breakaway in 1928. We went up to the period of the division caused by the Sino-Soviet dispute. And we now are at the position of the late 60s and the new left. Some of this people may know, some of this people may not know, some people may have forgotten some of the history. So we're in the period of the civil rights movement, the 60s. Most of the party was underground. We were not around, so a lot of the civil rights people went to other forces that were around the party, the CP, the old Communist Party, which we trace our lineage to. They set up something called the Civil Rights Congress, CRC, Civil Rights Congress. It was much further to the left than the NAACP, which the first editor of their magazine was W.E.B. Du Bois. The name of their magazine was called Crisis, and Du Bois eventually joined the communist movement when he was 92 or 93. And he filled out an application. Him and his wife were active in the communist movement later on in his years. So being that what we call the old left, O-L-D, the old left, which was really the communist left, the Marxist-Leninist left, the left that followed Lenin and Stalin and early Mao, that left wasn't around to influence the growing radicalization of young people in this country. When I was 15 years old, I became involved with the W.E.B. Du Bois Clubs, which was the youth arm of the Communist Party USA at the time. It was sort of like the Young Communist League of its days. And it was before even the Young Workers Liberation League, which came out in the early 70s, the YWLL. And our party has a youth group called the LYC, the League of Young Communists, and we follow the groups I just mentioned. That's our past. So we weren't around because of the McCarthy period. A lot of party people were on the ground. So people like Herbert Marcuse, who was a French Marxist, who was not a communist, definitely not, his writings became influential. In 1968, there was a student movement in France they tried to get the workers involved, but the working class did not follow them. They rose up against the establishment. But Herbert Marcuse was one of their philosophers. His position was basically the problem is not really capitalism, according to him. The problem was participatory democracy. People weren't allowed to get involved in everyday decisions. So his doctrine of participatory democracy became very important in the new left in this country, including the biggest group of all the Students for a Democratic Society, SDS. It was basically a student movement. I was involved. I was one of the leaders at Wagner College in Staten Island, and we had our offices in Prince Street in New York, but we, at every college, had a representative of SDS. And basically, our position was student power, that students can change society. Of course, that's not what Marx said, and it's ridiculous, but many of us at the time 
We couldn't compare what was going on to any other group because the communists were on the ground. So we were doing all this experimentation on our own. So student power was the slogan of the Students for Democratic Society. And very similar, African-Americans picked up the slogan, Black Power. And of course, in the early 70s, Women's Power, the Young Women's Movement in the early 70s. But of course, the issue should never have been student power or black power or women's power. It should have been really working class power. Because let's be honest, all the students went out on strike and society continued outside of the university campus. Society continued. It did not disrupt anything. But when the workers go out on strike, everything stops. As Marx said, because they're the closest to the means of production and they can actually stop society in its tracks. So that was in the area of the period of the 60s. 68, Nixon invaded Cambodia and all the campuses were closed down against the war in Indochina, which was expanding at the time. So now we're gonna get up until 1970s. And in 1969, a group called Progressive Labor Party broke away from the Communist Party. They were basically following Mao Zedong in China, and they believed that the peasants were basically the force that was gonna change society. And in third world countries, like in Cuba and in Indochina, there was a lot of validity to that, but not in the United States, because we don't have a peasant class. So I'm gonna stop right there and open it up to any questions. When they thought that the peasants were going to be the revolutionary engine, when they split off here and they followed that ideology, what counterpart did they identify in American society as fulfilling the role of that peasant class? Very good question. Because we don't have a peasant class, one would think they would go to the small farmers who are close to the land. In some way, there's a resemblance to peasants, only a resemblance. You would think they did that, but that's not what they did. They went to the intellectuals. They went to the students. They went to the universities. They did not go to the peasants. They did not go to the working class. And they went to the lumpen. What Marx said, beware of the lumpen. The lumpen, if anybody doesn't know what lumpen is, these are people that used to be in the working class and eventually fell away from the working class because they lost their jobs, whatever. So how did they live? Robbery on the streets, drugs, in order just to live to get food on the table. That was what the lumpen was. So they were separated from the working class. And the further and the longer they were separated from the working class, the longer they did not identify with the working class. So you see the slogan many times, workers and oppressed people of the world unite. That was a slogan from Lenin. But when he meant oppressed people, he didn't mean lumpen. He meant people that were in the colonies. Remember, European countries had colonies and the people that were in the colonies were oppressed, and that's what Lenin was talking about. So the Maoists in this country basically went straight to the universities, and they followed the Trotskyite movement, which also had no links to the working class, except for one city, Minneapolis. But the rest of the country, the working class, was either led by social democrats or by communists in the 1930s and 40s. Remember, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, CIO, 
out of the 18 CIO unions, 11 were led by members of the Communist Party who were members of the National Committee of the Party, sort of like the Central Committee. So much so that the McCarthy period was able to pass laws that any leader of the Communist Party or member of a Communist Party could not hold a position in the union. So a lot of people made a decision and they stepped down from the party and they just stayed in the union. So the Lumpen, are you saying that they weren't a part of the working class or that they just didn't associate with them at the time? The way I understand it, and maybe somebody else could chime in on this, they've been out of the working class such a long period of time that they no longer consider themselves part of the working class, uh, especially the organized working class, which is the trade union movement. So that's what the Lumpen is. Marx called them declassed, D-E-classed. They're not unemployed, like, say, for five years, 10 years, 11 years. No, these people are unemployed most of their life. And then their offspring also tends to be unemployed. It's a vicious cycle. And they tend to earn their living by doing petty things on the street. I don't know if you know what I mean by that. Robbing pocketbooks and selling cigarettes or drugs. Remember, when Marx talked about them, he doesn't look at them as a negative force. It's not a derogatory term. All Marx is saying is that they're not connected to the working class anymore, so they can never lead because they don't know how to work collectively, because the trade union movement is a school of socialism, according to Lenin. When you work in the trade union movement, you learn how to work collectively with other workers. And so it's like a school, a laboratory for socialism to breed socialism. And when you're in the lumpen, you're an individual. What was the situation in Soviet Union and also U.S. and the issue of China and U.S. getting together against Soviet Union and social imperialism and all of these nonsense? Well, of course, before we had a unified communist movement, we had a common turn up until 1943, we had a common turn. And it was the unified working class movement against the bosses, because capitalism is also global, especially now, but it was always global. American corporations, you know, there's an old saying, wherever Wall Street goes, they're carrying the American flag with them, and wherever they go, they carry American ideology, which is capitalism. So... The communist movement, what we did is we operated the Comintern, which is our answer. And every country had a section that was represented at the meetings of the Comintern. So the Sino-Soviet dispute over the issue of Khrushchev's denunciation of Stalin at the 20-party Congress in 1956, at that event, it was the reason that the Maoists gave for eventually coming against the Soviet Union. But I want everybody to know that from 56 till 1959, for three years, the Chinese said it nothing. All of a sudden, in 59, they came out with their first salvo. And meanwhile, the Soviets had been helping them. I don't know if people know this. Soviet engineers had gone with plants and built complete factories. China didn't have anything like that because they had just come out of World War II, remember? 1945, the war ended. So when the revolution happened in 49, 
All they did was have a revolutionary situation, but now the country was basically extremely poor. It was coming out of a period of colonization by the Western countries, especially Japan, during World War II. So they had to start from scratch, and it was the only country that helped them was the Soviets to build factories, steel factories, and other factories. I don't know if that answered your question. Was it really the issue of Stalin, or even before Stalin, I thought they had some problems? Yes, you're correct. I think Stalin was an excuse. That's what I believe, it was an excuse, because they wanted to be the center of the world communist movement. Peking wanted to replace Moscow as the center, and every communist party was split. Majority people went with the Soviet Union, but small groups went, and they called themselves ML parties. That's the term they use, Marxist-Leninists. But they're not really Marxist-Leninists. They're really Maoists, and there's a completely different ideology. Maoism talks about more or less the peasantry. It talks about going into the countryside, no centralization, which socialism needs centralization. They talk about decentralization. Every house had a little oven in the backyard that was supposed to make steel. Well, of course, the result of steel using iron being made in your backyard is going to be very inferior to quality. It has to be made in big factories to be good quality. So, yes, you're correct. I believe that Stalin was the excuse. And, in fact, today you never hear them talking about Stalin. All they talk about is... How bad the Soviet Union was. So in the 1970s, many, many people were traveling to the Soviet Union, especially delegations from unions in this country and in England, to see what was going on. I went on a teacher's delegation in 1976, and I wanted to stay in there for a couple of months because I was offered a job teaching English in an institute. English was the number one foreign language in the Soviet Union in 1976. And then, of course, what I saw there, which the young people are not going to see because there's no more Soviet Union, what I saw was a society operating with five-year plans, and every year was better than the year before. They produced more. And I was there during the period that Brezhnev was the general secretary of the party. And historians now refer to that period as the golden age of Soviet socialism. And that's the time I was there. There was The shelves were full of food, and I went all over the country, including Riga, which was in the Baltic area, Kiev, which is now run by Nazis. I went to Moscow, Leningrad, which is now called St. Petersburg, the same name that it was called when the Tsar ran it. Remember, after the Tsar lost a lot of his power, they had a constitutional monarchy, and St. Petersburg was changed to Petrograd which in Russian means Peter's city. Grad, G-R-A-D, at the end of the word means city. So they changed the name, and then in honor of Lenin, after the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution, it was called Leningrad. Until the counter-revolution in 1991, when they went back to St. Petersburg. And the flag, by the way, the flag that they have today was the same flag that was used in the last few years of the Tsar. I think that's important that people know that. The same colors. So I'm up to now 1970s. Most of my years in the Communist Party were invaluable. 
It taught me a lot. I learned the way the party operated then was very communist, Marxist-Leninist. There were many, many groups the party helped set up the way our party is trying to do today. And on different issues, on the economic crisis at the time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Any more questions? Love the proletariat. Would the current day equivalents be like people who were cash jobs in bars or nightclubs at night, kind of untraceable, or like, say, sex workers? People who have been living on the edges of... Yes, on the edges. Society. Yeah, you're correct. It's basically okay. people that are on the edges. Yeah, that's a very good way okay. of putting it. During the Vietnam War era, especially in South Vietnam, the National Liberation Front, or what was then known as the Viet Cong, where was their mainstay of support as far as the Communist Party of the U.S. is concerned? I know that they were primarily being supplied from North Vietnam or the Democratic Republic of Vietnam at the time when Ho Chi Minh was president, but how deeply involved was China and the Soviet Union with the National Liberation Front or the South Vietnamese Communist Party at the time as far as financing, training, and things of that nature, which primarily led to the ultimate downfall of South Vietnam and the rise of the Provisional Revolutionary Government. It started in 1950s, early 50s. The French had come in at the end of the war, 45 was the end of the war, Japanese were driven out, led by Ho Chi Minh, and the group that fought against the French coming in was called the Viet Minh. Then there was a big battle in 1954. The French lost. The French, a big, big power at the time, lost, and the Vietnamese won. Instead of letting the Vietnamese, after they won the Battle of Dien Phen Phu, what the United States did is they came in then. They let the French go, and they came in. That was the beginning of U.S. involvement. So it was always a national liberation war, comrades. It was never a war for socialism. I want people to get that straight. It was a war for national liberation. They were colonized. The only people that were able to galvanize the country as a nationalist movement were the communists, because all the others had been involved, all the South Vietnamese government, many of them, had been involved in the puppet government that was set up by the Japanese. Remember, they set up puppet governments in China called Manchukuo. That was a government that was set up. They did the same thing in Laos and in Vietnam and Cambodia. So the only really non-puppet forces were led by the communists, whose ideology is national liberation, as Lenin said. And so therefore it would be logical. So it was never, never something where it was from the outside in. It was always internal. And the only country that had the material was the Soviet Union. China had small guns, things like that. But remember, China was not developed in the 50s. They had their own revolution in 49. So they had to stop building factories. And during the 50s, remember I mentioned, the Soviets were building up China economically. And in the 60s, that's when there was a split between the Soviet Union and China. Then the Chinese gave some aid, but very little. The communist movement throughout the world supported the National Liberation Movement. 
Then there were individual left-wing people in this country, for example. One guy is still around. His name is Walter Teague, T-E-A-G-U-E. And I remember, because I had been working with him at the time, his group was U.S. Committee to Support the NLF, National Liberation Front. But it wasn't a party. It was one or two people in this area, one or two in another area. So it was never a Communist Party policy to support the guerrilla movement inside any of these countries, including Cuba. That's very important for people to know. The position of the Communist Party in Cuba in the 50s was not the same as Fidel Castro's. Fidel Castro formed the July 26th movement, and it was separate from the party, from the CP. There were some people like Fidel's brother, Raul. He was a member of the Communist Party as an individual when he was a young student. But the party got involved later on only because the Soviet Union was the only country, under Khrushchev now, was the only country that was willing to give aid to Cuba. The United States created an embargo in 1960. Remember what happened? Everything was nationalized by the revolutionary government, including oil companies and everything else, sugar companies and sugarcane. And therefore, the United States defended, as it always does, the individual entrepreneurs, the capitalists. So it created an embargo against Cuba. But the only country that was actually aiding Cuba till the very end, to the very end, was the Soviet Union. In fact, it was the only country was also aiding the DPRK. And so life was getting better, 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 better for all these other young communist countries, Laos, because the Soviets practiced proletarian internationalism, which the Chinese never did. The Chinese to this day never did that. Chinese corporations go into Africa and they help the people by helping the countries, the governments in Africa, by setting up certain factories and everything else. But profits involved. You don't have that with the Soviet Union. They didn't go in there to make profits. To harken back to the Lumpens, I was wondering, are they still part of the working class, depending on the situations that revolve? They're not part of the organized working class. The labor movement is. Organized I... is the key word. The organized working class is the labor movement. Okay. And we always urge, Lenin, all of us, urge that we have to build the trade union movement. But individual people can still be members of the working class, but they're not part of the organized working class. That's the big difference. How does the trade union movement actually work? How do the specific gears in that work? And when Lenin was saying that is how it breeds into socialism, can you elaborate on that for me? Yeah, well, on the capitalism, before the Industrial Revolution, everybody worked in their own homes to produce things. Before the Industrial Revolution, before they created factories, people worked in their own farms. They made their own chairs, their own baby bassinets. Everything was done on an individual basis. With the Industrial Revolution and the beginning of machinery, now they hired more people. And people didn't work in their homes anymore. They worked in a factory. So now you have workers working side by side with each other. Normally, they would never have talked to each other. This worker would be in his house. The other one would be in their house. But now they're forced 
to go to a collective area. And so now they experience the oppression of the boss under capitalism that normally they would not experience if they were on their own. So it becomes forcing people to work in a collective and trying to solve their problems where they are in the job. And that's the beauty of the trade union movement. And that helped a lot of people in Tsarist Russia who also were like peasants who did not work in a factory situation. It forces them to begin to discuss things with each other and see what they have in common. And they discuss on what they could do to find solutions for their economic problems. That's why these classes are important, comrades. This is the places where you're going to learn. By reading by yourself is not the same thing. It helps, but it's not the same thing. This way you can hear other people, what their views are. When you personally lived in the USSR, how was the daily life and then the five-year plan? Well, first of all, I was there for three months, but it was daily. It was a daily situation where I was in a school that was teaching English, learning, and that was going to be my job on a full-time basis. I was there June, July, and August, and I worked at camps, what they call children's camps, and saw how they operated. But what got me was when I was walking the streets of Moscow and looking up and seeing all these building cranes. In fact, there was a movie made in 1961, a Soviet movie called The Cranes Are Flying. And I thought at the time it was Japanese cranes, birds. It's not. The Cranes Are Flying was about how the Soviets were building up, modernizing their society by building homes for everyone. Remember, in 1945, the war ended. Every city in the Soviet Union, in the European part of the Soviet Union, was destroyed. Minsk, the whole city was leveled. There only was a church standing. A whole city, a big, tremendous city of six or seven million people was wiped out. And so they had to have this vast program of building homes for people so that when the winter comes, they wouldn't be out freezing. And so the homes were not the fanciest at all, but they served their purpose. Heated flats, heated apartments in the wintertime. And the winter was long there in many parts of the Soviet Union. So that's the first thing I noticed. The other thing is the complete lack of military in the streets. Cops over here carry guns, and they carry batons. They did not do that in the Soviet Union. I found that strange. Cop just wore a regular uniform. You didn't even know it was a cop, except you could tell it was a uniform. There was no fire departments. This was the other thing that got me. There was no fire departments, and I asked why. And the answer they gave me is they don't have too many fires. And I said, well, why do you say that? They said, because there's no private housing, you don't have people burning down their building for insurance reasons. There was no insurance companies. I thought that was extremely interesting. Now, I was there for a long time. I didn't see no fire engines, no fire alarms. They had them, but there was no fires. How do you explain that? So that's another thing I thought was interesting. Also, the buses came every three minutes. You didn't need a car because there was a bus stop. At every two blocks, there was a bus stop. So you got out of your building, you go to the bus stop, three minutes it comes, a bus where you sit down, it's not crowded, and another three minutes, another bus comes. And another three minutes, another bus comes. Because over here, we cannot waste fuel. Everything is profit. 
even in their municipal cities like New York. Everything has to be the profit. Over there, profit is not number one. It's number one on certain things, but not on everything. So transportation was relatively cheap. It was like two or three cents in the United States at the time. And that's another thing that I thought was extremely interesting. And people did everything on an honor basis. People went on the subways. Nobody runs across the turnstile. Everybody, when you get on the bus, you put the money in. There was no tokens. You put money in. It was a kopeck. And you put a kopeck in. That was the other thing that I thought was fascinating. Also, walking the streets anytime you want, no crime, no crime, no crime, no crime. That was very interesting. It's unfortunate that your generation doesn't have that to see anymore. What do you think was the most damaging ideological shift during the Khrushchev era and that they do during the Brezhnev era to fix it? All right. Right away, it's easy to notice. There was a book written, Socialism Betrayed, by Roger Kieran, that was written about what happened in 1991. And one of the problems was the black market. That was a problem. Not everybody was involved in it, but there was enough people that it would cause a dent. Remember now, they watch Western TV, and they see how the people in the West live. They think everybody lives like that. Meanwhile, all the people that live in projects, they don't see that. They see things like Falcon Crest, which is a series, things like everybody's a millionaire. If you look at the soap operas in this country, everybody owns a corporation with a board of directors and they're the CEOs. That's ridiculous. But that's what they saw. So you had people who were managers in a factory. Let's say they produce TVs. They would be able to sneak one or two TVs out, put it in their car, go in the street, the word gets out that you can get a TV, but the TVs were cheap anyway. But it was somebody making extra money on the side. That was a problem. What did I think about the Khrushchev era? All I could say is that ideologically there were problems, but on the other hand, there were good things that were done. For example, when the fascists arose in Hungary in 1956, remember the war ended in 45. Who was in control of Hungary in 1945? The fascists. Horty, General Horty, H-O-R-T-H-Y. They were fascists. And when the war ended, they didn't just leave. They went underground. That was 45. So 11 years later, they came from underground when it was appropriate for them to do so. And they tried to overthrow the socialist government in Hungary. They hung people from the lamppost, many of them Jews, because a large number of Jews were members of the communist movement because the Jews were in the resistance against fascism. So it makes total sense. So when the uprising happened in 1956, Khrushchev did the correct thing. He sent in, Warsaw Pact sent in tanks to put down the fascist uprising. In this country, they called it a freedom uprising. Well, what do you expect? Remember, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. I don't know if you ever heard that before. So the press in this country and who controls the press, we all know, it's not independent. It's controlled by the multinational corporations. In Poland, the same thing happened. And in the GDR, what we were told in the schools about how the GDR was born and how Germany was separated is not the case at all. The West, the West, remember, four powers were in control of Germany, and they divided into four sections, including Berlin. 
It was divided into four sections, English, French, U.S., and Soviet zones. And what happened is that on their own, in Eastern Germany, everything was subsidized by the government. For example, food, all the food was subsidized. Whatever they made, cameras, was subsidized by the government. So the people from the West, before there was a border, the people from the Western areas would go into the East. Remember, there was no border. You just walk right over it. There was no wall at that time. They just walked in, bought the items so that there was no items for the people that were living there. They took it away from them, and then they went back and they lived in the Western zone. So it was the United States that started a separate currency, a separate German mark. And it wasn't the Soviet Union. It was the West that did this. And you don't hear about that. None of that you hear about. Now, socialism, the trade book. I urge everybody to get it. It's very well written. And he goes and he explains how Gorbachev was operating. Gorbachev fooled a lot of people. He fooled people in the communist movement. He fooled leaders in the communist movement. But he didn't fool all of them. Fidel Castro, from the very beginning, was opposed to him. Cuba was not allowing any Soviet periodicals to come into Cuba because the works that were being produced under Glasnost were works that were attacking the very existence of socialism in the Soviet Union. And it's unfortunate that a lot of people got fooled by that who should have known better. They should have known better. But that's what happens. This idea that the leader can never do anything wrong is a real problem in the communist movement. Because the leader is a human being and they can make mistakes sometimes. So that book, Socialism Betrayed, goes into that. And I urge everybody to get a hold of it wherever you can get it. That's why we have it. We want to be able to get the information out that the society did not give you. It's right there. Primary sources. I hope everybody takes notes. And I hope that you learn something from this. As an educator, I failed if my students don't go away learning something that they didn't know before. Okay, comrades? And I want to thank everybody. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information, or if you're interested in attending classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube channel, or email info at psmls.org.